historically, we just suck it up. We don't whine about it. Be a man. Like all these things that you're taught when you're younger that you have to eventually overcome. I was in a psych ward and started strumming a guitar, playing a song and just seeing everyone all around me and all connected around mental health and music at the same time. And it was just so healing. Welcome to Hope Starts With Us, a podcast by NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I'm your host, Daniel H. Gillison Jr., NAMI's CEO. We started this podcast because we believe that hope starts with us. Hope starts with us talking about mental health. Hope starts with us making information accessible. Hope starts with us providing resources and practical advice. Hope starts with us sharing our stories. Hope starts with us breaking the stigma. If you or a loved one is struggling with a mental health condition and have been looking for hope, we made this podcast for you. Hope starts with all of us. Hope is a collective. We hope that each episode with each conversation brings you into that collective to know you are not alone. In honor of Men's Health Awareness Month, affectionately known by many as Movember, I'm talking to two incredible men today about male mental health and the incredible power music and the arts can have on our well-being. Joining us today is Drew Lachey, who you may know from Broadway, Dancing with the Stars, or a little band called 98 Degrees, a true Renaissance man, and Chris Bullard who is not only a former touring musician that performed with acts such as Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson, but is actually the founder and executive director of Sound Mind, a nonprofit committed to fostering community, dialogue, and action on mental health through the power of music. Drew and Chris, we are so honored to have you with us today. And really, thank you from all of us at NAMI for you being a part of this conversation. And this is a conversation for you versus us. So I always start out the episodes by just sort of handing the mic to each of our guests and just asking a couple of open questions and letting you go with it from the standpoint of telling our listeners a little bit about your personal journey with music and mental health and then how you learned about NAMI. So, uh, Drew, would you kick it off for us? Yeah, of course. Um, Yeah, so I've I've been in the music business for over 25 years now. Um, I started at a pretty young age. So a lot of my growth as an adult came under a bit of a spotlight, you know, so whether it was through that MTV TRL age or whether it was even, you know, my marriage and my first kid when I was on Dance with the Stars. So, um, you know, I've kind of had to come to grips with who I am with, uh, with, with, you know, a couple of sets of eyeballs on me, you know, so for me growing up kind of with that journey, you know, out there. I I like to say that, you know, I've tried to become the man that I think that I want to be, you know, whether that is as a husband, a father, uh, as an artist, somebody that people can look up to. But for me, the whole journey has kind of made me have to look inside as to where I find my self-worth as far as whether it's from public opinion or whether it's my family or whether it's just how I see myself. So, you know, my appreciation for what, what NAMI is doing um, goes beyond just me now because I have two kids now. Um, I have a nonprofit as well. Um, so I first heard about NAMI through uh, a friend of mine because we have a show called Labelist, which you know deals with a lot of different isms, as we like to call them, and mental health being one of those. And so when I heard about NAMI and the work that they were doing, I thought this would be a perfect fit. And I was, I was happy to be a part of the podcast. Thank you, Drew. Before we go over to you, Chris, I want to stay with you. You mentioned self-worth, and it's so easy that we look at the status quo, and we we could look at at the beginning of your career because you started very young, and then a lot of people around you can say, well, you need to just stay with this. You broaden your tapestry or your landscape, or you kind of looked at it and say, I want to paint my future, not what the society tells me I should do. How did that look from a stress um, uh, and energy. I don't know. Was there any anxiety about it? And if there was, what did that look like? And how did you navigate it? You know, in the music industry, it's all stress. Um, you know, good and bad. You know, whether it's you know the standard that you set for yourself as a performer, what you want to live up to, uh, whether it's sales numbers, whether you're meeting those, whether it's radio airplay, whether it's you get a certain ranking on on the Billboard Hot 100. Everything is stress and and trying to live live up to some sort of expectation, whether that is media-based, label-based, self-based, uh, whether you assign that to yourself. You know, I, I think for, for me, I didn't necessarily navigate it as well 
at 21, 22, 23, as I would now at, at 47. You know, we're still out touring now and we have a completely different perspective on the industry and how we want to fit into it and what we want to get out of our experiences. Um, so it's less about living up to some other expectation that, you know, the record label has, you know, certain sales numbers that you have to hit. And if you don't hit those, then you feel like a failure. This other group is hitting those and you've got to compete. You know, we, we've definitely taken a step back and looked at it from a, a point of view of what makes us happy. Being on the road, performing together, being in front of our fans, finding joy in the art and making music together. That is kind of where we have put our happiness now as a group. And me now as an individual, not just looking at what I'm getting out of a situation. Like, what can I get out of this? What is this doing for me? But I try to look at things more as like, what can I contribute to the situation? What can I contribute to this opportunity that's in front of me? How can I make this opportunity better, not only for myself, but for the others that are taking part in it? So, you know, 21, 22 versus 47, there's been a little little bit of growth <laughs> in those 20 something years. I got you. I got you. Thank you for sharing that. I really do appreciate it. Uh, and the lens you look through at 47 is a lot different than at 21, 22. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, these these are the lenses I look through now, the glasses. You know, I, I, oh, that's what you guys look like. Oh, I couldn't even tell. Oh, no, and, I, just, and, and, and my oh. vanity is having me not want to do this. But okay, okay, guys. So, hey, hey Chris, I want to come to you. And what's your journey been like with mental health over the years? And how has music helped you cope with all that you've been navigating and doing? Uh, such a great question. And you know, I, I've played music pretty much my whole life. Since the age of five, I was playing piano, got my first guitar at 13 and was in bands ever since. And I think it's always been really connected to mental health for me because I think I've always been someone who feels things really deeply, uh, deeper, it felt like than a lot of others around me. And music was always a way of connecting with community that felt similarly getting out emotions. I would go to punk rock shows as a high school kid and get in the mosh pit and have that beautiful sense of community as well as getting out all of that angsty energy as a teen. And so, so music was always really connected to it up until, you know, touring. And I mean, I still perform and release music now more for licensing and things like that. Um, but you know, the, the big tie for mental health for me came. So I, in my mid twenties, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and, I think the, the first connection for me came, I was in a psych ward and started strumming a guitar, playing a song and just seeing everyone all around me gather around people who are both homeless off the street, bankers from, you know, worth making hundreds of thousands a year in finance and all connected around mental health and music at the same time, singing in a psych ward. And it was just so healing, that sense of universal human experience that music is and also mental health is. Uh, and so, you know, for me in my own mental health journey, you know, it took me a while to really understand what was gonna help me cope with some of the negative symptoms I was experiencing. And one of the biggest things was actually going to a NAMI support group. I had a, a I can't remember if it was my therapist or my psychiatrist. This was surprisingly years after the diagnosis said, you should try a peer support group with NAMI. And I went to one of the bipolar support groups and it was just amazing you know, that sense of mentorship of people who had been there before me uh, experiencing symptoms of bipolar disorder. And then me being further down the line than maybe someone else who had just recently experienced a diagnosis. And it inspired me to actually start a music support program at NAMI in New York City. Uh, and eventually the, the nonprofit I run now, Soundmind Live, really grew out of that. And, and just using music as this platform, not only in smaller community settings, but working with touring artists to, to tell their story, to open up conversation, to bring people together around mental health through music as this vehicle that just transcends words in many ways. And, and I think a lot of mental health experience does that too. We feel these feelings that our society often doesn't allow us to express or we feel like doesn't allow us to express openly. And music is one of those things that allows us to connect with ourselves in those ways and others in those ways. So it's been hugely uh, just transformative for me in my own experience and continues to be anytime I'm, I'm feeling challenging feelings. It's like, let me pick up a guitar and, and sing what, what this is making me feel. And the next day I feel a ton better. I didn't even have to go see my therapist. 
You know, thank you for that. And Drew, we're going to come back to you in a second. But Chris, I want to stay on something you said early in your statement. You mentioned that you were diagnosed in your 20s. We have statistics that show that a young person can actually show symptoms at the age of like 14, but they don't get any services or they don't get their diagnosis until almost 11 years later. So that could be at the age of 25. As you were diagnosed in your 20s, can you think back, were there any kind of things that you could say, well, that's what I was experiencing before I hit my 20s. Was that any part of your journey as you were uh, diagnosed? Yeah. Another really great and I think an important question. I was 18 in high school and I had smoked marijuana with friends and I had, I think, what would be described as you know, a, a manic episode. Um, but for me, it was this dissociation with reality, dissociation from my ego. And in, in many ways, it was, felt like a highly spiritual experience, but there was no one around me to tell me others have experienced this. You know, it was just, it was so out of the norm of what anyone around, you know, I thought that I had, had laced drugs or something. And looking back, I mean, it, it was an initial you know, psychotic experience or out, out of my own ego, like I said. And, you know, I, I think one of the big missing things is just talking about this more, normalizing it and having when people experience things that can be scary like that, having others who have, who have been through it to talk through, like, here's some next steps you can take. And the whole aspect of you're not alone, like this is not just unique to you and how that is a, a pathway towards you know, getting support for the things that are challenging. And then also for me, a lot of really beautifully healing experiences of things I've found out about myself that are positive attributes from that too. So uh, I think that, you know, that, that mixed lens at that age would have been so helpful and, and, you know, maybe avoided some, some hardship later on. That's why we at NAMI talk about early intervention. That's why we wrote the book that's over my shoulder called You're Not Alone, which has got 130 first-person experiences uh, to help people uh, identify families and individuals, identify what is it I'm navigating? What is it I'm experiencing? And making sure that they can see themselves in these stories and say, wait a minute. I'm not the only one now. And they are. And in the, the book, it also actually talks through how people navigate it. So you don't have to be kind of out there by yourself trying to navigate it. You have someone else that's done it, that is telling, that's sharing their name and their story. So thank you for saying that uh, in terms of making sure people know they're not alone in early intervention. And Drew, I want to come to you. As we said, you're not alone. And you have a new musical called Labelless. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? It's 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 intriguing, just the name Labelless. So Labelless is basically... Um a series of first-person vignettes, almost personal stories that talk about everything from racism, homophobia, bullying, self-worth, mental health, disability, you know, it just a, a plethora of different of different topics. And they're all taken from people's real life, true life stories. Um, so we kind of lay out what are we calling these isms, you know, whether it's racism, classism, and kind of talk about how they're affecting us as, as human beings. And it's, it's a, it's a musical experience as well. Um, you know, so we have a song that kind of goes along with a, a person's story and it's choreographed. And so it, it allows people to see these stories in a way that isn't so preachy. So this is how you need to change the way you're looking at things. This is how, and it allows people who are maybe going through those situations to feel seen because that is ultimately what we all want and need is to feel like we are truly seen for who we are. So if you take a person, if you take away, all right, this is a poor, gay, white man, and you take all those things away, and you just get to know them as John, and you get to know who John is, that's a much truer representation of who John is than the gay, poor, white guy, and all the stigmas that go along with that. So that's what labelless is. We're trying to get people to look at individuals humanity, society, in a way without all those things, just getting to see people for who they truly are. Really is a um, a hopeful show. It's a hopeful story. Mental health being one of the things that we we talk about in there. And even though we are talking about, you know, depression and anxiety and, and one of our actors is telling their story of how they've struggled with it, that's the only part of the show where we have two songs that are told from different perspectives. There's one song where it's him dealing with his own struggles with you know, how is he going to get through this day? How is he going to struggle to, how is he going to fight through the struggle? But it's also told from the perspective of the people that love him and surround him 
and how they can try and contribute, even though they know that they can't necessarily fix the problem, you know, they, but that they are there for him and they, he is not alone in this struggle and in this battle. And that song is called fight alone. And it, cause no one is ever meant to fight alone. It's about support and the support of the community. And that's kind of, you know, kind of what NAMI is doing. It's, it's creating the support system that allows people to feel like they are not alone in this journey, in this, in this battle, uh, to try and, you know, get through their mental health issues. You know, Drew, thank you. And you mentioned community and a collective. Can't fix it for the person, but we can surround you with community and we can create this collective. Um, I want to go back to asking you, um, it's fantastic. We want to we want to make sure the audience gets to know how they can learn more about it. Um, but before you answer that one, I want to ask you this question. Why did you create it? Um, it wasn't intentional. We didn't, we didn't set out to create it. Um, my wife and I run a a performing arts nonprofit here in Cincinnati, where we're both from. And we were doing an acting exercise about compassion and empathy and trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes because in acting, that's how you do it. You create a character that's based around, you know, someone's journey and people were, they were kind of struggling to put themselves in someone else's shoes. So we had this exercise where we asked them to anonymously write down on a scrap of paper a way that they felt like they might have been discriminated against in their life. And we thought it'd be like, oh, you know, I'm, you know, little, little surface, surface concerns, like typical high school. Oh, they didn't like the sweatshirt I wore. But when we read these, these notes, we were still talking about racism and classism and homophobia, like big topics that, that people are struggling with, even though I didn't see them in my daily life. You know, I, I didn't see these struggles going on, but that these 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds were struggling with these things every day. It made us want to try and create something that would at least tell their stories, give a, give a voice to their struggles um, and hopefully create conversations. Because if you're not willing to talk about an issue, if you're not willing to talk about a subject, it's never going to get resolved. It's never going to move forward. And so we feel like Labelist is a great way to put things in perspective in, in a way that people are open to having those conversations. So it tries to remove the stigma about homophobia, mental health, racism, so we can actually sit down and have a conversation about it. Let's get rid of the stigma. And um, kudos to you and your wife. How can our audience learn more about Labelists? We're at labelistmusical.com. We're finishing up a seven-city tour right now. Uh, We've got three more shows left, Uh, the last one being in New York City, our off-Broadway debut. So we're very, very excited about that, not only because... It means that this five-year journey has been, you know, growing towards something. But with every city we go to, with every audience we see, we have people that are coming up to us in tears, feeling, saying that they've never felt more seen in their lives. You know, whether they struggle with mental health or whether they struggle with their own body image and self-worth, you know, we feel like people are truly being able to come to the show and either see themselves in a different way or possibly see how they have been, you know, labeling people in a way that that isn't isn't effective and isn't healthy you know drew i appreciate this so much being a um an old old um tennis player back in the 70s and um i can relate because all i wanted to do is to be able to hit a forehand or a backhand and there were times uh playing as a high school and college athlete before i could even get to the forehand and the backhand the uh uh, the melanin in my skin was, you know, it, it was about that in terms of access to courts, access to yeah. clubs, access to tournaments. So um, I can relate. I, I, I wanted to be labelless and I just wanted to be able to hit forehands and backhands. And if I could hit them better than you, then so be it. It's no different than that sport you and I were talking about baseball in terms of if I can hit a curveball and a slider, then it doesn't matter what I look like. Um, and it goes to all the different things you're talking about. So thank you to you and your wife. And I want to transition now to Chris because Chris is doing some unique unique things with, with music and, and his art. And, and just wanted to, to ask you, Chris, to talk about music and mental health. And, and on your website, you cite a statistic, 73, and, and your website, Sound Mind. 73% of musicians live with mental health issues. Can you tell us more about why you founded Sound Mind? And why do you think so many musicians in particular struggle with mental health? Yeah, I definitely. And and I just want to add to what both of you said on labels. I just think, Drew, what you're doing is so incredible because um, I find labels just it's it can be so helpful to label something to know, you know, whether it's a diagnosis or identify with any sort of community and, and the unique struggles. And at the same time, it can be 
debilitating in some ways when you you stop at that label and not, don't drop back into the ultimate human experience of just what it is to be on this planet. So just yeah, under, understanding, understanding and, and labeling are two different, two different things like understanding a situation and versus just kind of dismissing it as that that's unknown. They're, they're very, very different. So yes, I thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. No. And, and I mean, I think that was a lot of my reason for, for starting sound mind. I, I think the, the, the real, impetus for it you mentioned yeah like one of the artists i got to play with was was willie nelson who started uh, an annual festival called farm aid which supports family farmers through music with artists coming out every year and performing um you know there have been events like global citizen festival which supports folks who are impoverished around the world and my initial vision and impetus was why do we not have this for mental health when when music has been so healing in my own journey and seeing how powerful it can be in smaller groups. Why are we not bringing artists from across genre together, communities from across different walks of life together? Because that that uniting force, like we're talking about across labels, uh, music is is a great unifier in in that sense. And so, you know, one of the main things that we do as an organization is we host an annual music festival for mental health in New York City. That's completely free to the public, a couple thousand people every year. And we, beyond the artists performing and talking about mental health, it's really a convening for mental health organizations involved. So NAMI has been an, an anchor partner since the founding. And, you know, we have about other 30 other mental health organizations involved and use music as a way to bring people to the table and have panel conversations with both artists and organizations. And, and then usually the artists representing the folks with lived experience uh, and, and what that lived experience is saying about what are the services that are needed, where are the gaps and for a lot of the people attending, either live or virtually, um, where can you get support? Uh, and so we also do that throughout the year with a podcast, and we go on tour with artists as well to kind of just, again, like earlier intervention on mental health, reaching people where they're at through music. And you know, to the, the point of 73% of artists, you know, it's something you really see across different artistic fields. I mean, I don't know the exact statistics, but I know um, there's a shocking number, for example, of like bipolar poets uh, and and just in different artistic fields. You know, I think that aspect of sensitivity to life and the emotionality of life is one aspect of it that a lot of artists are willing to push up against some of those walls, which can, if cross, also lead into some mental health issues. But some of it is just the nature of the music industry and what it is to be a musician, um, having both firsthand experience with that as a touring artist myself and, and just hearing from others. I mean, if you're dealing with any mental health issue, you know, kind of the basics are, do you have regularity? Are you getting sleep? Are you eating well? Um, Turning to substances can be an easy uh, shortcut outlet rather than actually addressing the underlying issue. And in something like music, you know, if you're on the road, you're not getting regular sleep. You're probably not eating well. You're under a lot of stress, like Drew said. Uh, and this is true for huge touring artists that are doing really well, as well as fledgling artists. This is just the case. And if you're a fledgling artist, you're also on a ton- under a ton of financial strain. So that mix of this constant stress. And then the just the the not ability to have regularity and and for a long time, you know, drugs and alcohol being very normalized in the music community. I think it's gotten a lot better now. And with each generation, you know, um, moving away from substances is becoming increasingly not out of the norm. Uh, but definitely for a while, and, and still to a large extent today, um, turning to substances, whether it's alcohol or you know harder drugs, um, it. It is a all too common escape for folks in the music community. Yeah, thank you, Chris. And and Drew, um, with your work in the industry, building off of Chris's work, you know, we are a cosmetic society. So in a lot of ways, we judge the the cover of the book versus getting into the table of contents and the chapters. You know, as we've seen you both and we see you performing and 21 years later performing, we see the cover of the book. Take us into the table of contents and the chapters a little bit in terms of your navigation, what you've seen with colleagues and peers in the industry uh, at the highest level that we see in all the different on all the different platforms. And we cheer them and all that. What's happening behind the scenes? What have you seen in terms of uh, mental well-being? Well, I think uh, in a large degree, a lot of musical artists, actors, just performers in general, 
there it's a lot of it is based out of a sense of insecurity um you and finding uh, a level of comfort and self-worth out of the applause or the reaction that you get and so you're you almost become addicted to that almost like it's a almost like it is a drug um that high of being on stage and getting that type of positive reinforcement it also allows you a little bit of uh, <laughs> allows you to kind of push away some of those demons and not necessarily deal with them on a regular basis. I know for me personally, you know, after like 98 degrees, it already, you know, hit its it hit its height. And then I was on Dance with the Stars. The time that I was probably struggling the most with like who I was and who I wanted to be as a, as a, as a man, as a human being was when I was probably at my highest, you know, my, I was, had just won Dance with the Stars. My wife had just given birth to our first child. Everything in my life should have been fantastic. And all I could do was try and get my head around, like, why am I so miserable? Why am I so unhappy? Why, why am I struggling so much? And you start to think, all right, what, what can I change? What do I do? Do I need to, how can I, how can I put a bandaid on this? What is the problem? And it wasn't until I finally started talking to somebody um, on a regular basis where I started breaking down, like, all right, these are, these are certain triggers for me. These are things that have happened in my past that I've been struggling with. And it wasn't until I started to be able to identify those triggers and those, I mean, I know triggers is kind of a broad, broad word that, you know, isn't necessarily always accepted. But when I noticed the things that were starting to cause me to kind of slip into more, more of a, a depressed state. I was able to kind of start to talk to somebody before I got too far down that road and couldn't dig myself out anymore. And, and I think a lot of it for me was I was able to talk to my dad as well, who had you know opened up to me about some things that he had gone through earlier in his life. And he shared this kind of expression with me that helps me a lot when I'm trying to talk to people about you should talk to somebody is you can never know yourself too well. Like you can never, you can never dig enough into who you are as a person, what makes you tick, what you want out of life. You can never know too much about yourself. And the way you're going to do that is by, is by digging, is by asking questions, is by talking to other people that can support you and let you be like, you know what? That's normal. That is not something that you should feel embarrassed of or ashamed of. Okay. So you need to get out of your own way. So, all right. If you need to be on some medication for a little bit, it's okay to be on it. And just with the professional helping you, guiding you through it. And I feel like my dad was very, very important in, in helping me with that. My aunt as well. You know, so for me, it's kind of been this constant journey of defining what it is that kind of gets me into a place where I, I call it a funk, you know, where I just feel like everything's starting to get gray and I can't really see the, the forest for the trees. And I'm very short-sighted and, you know, being able to talk to people has really helped me through that. And honestly, now I have almost a mentorship relationship with some, some younger performers. And for me, being able to share my experiences with them, it helps them, but it also helps me. It helps me talk through my, my situation and, and kind of reminds me of what I need to do to, to, to get through the day and to be the most productive father and husband and, and human that I can be. So, um, you know, I, I never want to diminish professional advice and help because that was key to me, you know, being able to get them out of my own way and, and, you know, kind of see a little more clearly, but just talking to a friend, a parent, uh, a colleague, somebody that you trust that you can open up about the weight that is just lifted off you just by being able to talk openly and candidly, it, it can be, it can be tremendous. You know, um, I, I can't appreciate this enough. We can't appreciate it enough where you talked about trust, finding someone to talk to. And I could also hear the echoes of a judgment free zone. You want to find someone that is that is going to you know, it's it's kind of what we say at NAMI. Uh, we want to meet you where you are, not where we want you to be. And um, mm -hmm. um, so and if we meet you where where you are, we're not passing judgment. We just want to hear and we want to listen. Um, and that trust and judgment-free zone is important. And you also said something that as I think about it, here you are on top of the world. You, you, you're, you have your, your, your firstborn. You've just won Dancing with the Stars, which is seen by millions. And you're like, why, why am I? What's going on? And yep. I thank you for sharing that because I think that's, that's crucial for our audience to hear that it's okay and that sometimes you can be accomplishing great things, but you still great things as society sees them and as the outside world sees them, but they don't seem that way to you. 
And you just have to be in touch. And what your dad told you about, you can't know yourself too well, I think is what it was, right? Yeah, you can never know yourself well enough. You can never know too much about yourself. That's incredible. So thank you for sharing that. Um, You know, I want to now go to the other side of this and kind of look at what we know is that musicians and artists do have challenges. They have stressors. Uh, You mentioned the insecurity, Drew, and, and sometimes pushing away the demons. They also have incredible coping skills and resources at their at fingertips. And a lot of uh, research shows that, that music can actually reduce feelings of stress, which you've talked about, Chris, and um, improve motivation and, and mood and even help manage pain. Have you both seen music play a role in well-being either in yourself or others? And if so, do you have some examples? Yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen it transform lives. I mean, I think one thing that music does that sometimes we don't think about is, you know, we're all, what is normal? None of us are quote unquote normal. We all have this aspect of us that wants to be something that maybe society, we don't feel like we can be in our society and musicians and music sometimes gives us the permission to either do that and express it or even see it on stage. You know, you, I think the, one of the reasons I've, I've heard both from artists and fans at some of our shows is when you see an artist on stage rocking out, like totally wild. If you just saw someone on the street doing that, you'd be like, oh, that guy might, <laughs> that's a little wild. Like what's wrong with him or her? Uh, but, you know, it kind of, they give you that permission that like, this is part of the human experience too. And it's okay to express this way, whatever that is. And say, so, you know, one of the things that we've done in a, started doing at some of our events is leading improvisational group singing where someone will come in and as opposed to just watching a show, they'll lead the whole audience in a circle singing exercise where the audience is actually vocalizing and harmonizing with themselves. And it's interesting to watch people needing to give themselves the permission or, you know, by watching others feeling like they're given the permission to just sing that, you know, that just using your voice in a way that you're not accustomed to is okay. And I I think it's very akin to the sense of stigma that people sometimes feel or that they can't express what's really going on inside or express who they truly are and seeing how music can open that up within people, even just inviting them to sing and harmonize with each other is, is incredible. And, you know, people just are moved to tears from that. And I think when we see at our events, people move to tears, whether it's through something an artist says or a sound bath or this group singing, it's just this expression of some part of ourselves that, for some reason or another, we just don't seem to get a lot in, in everyday life. And, and we forget that every opportunity on a Zoom call, in a, in a meeting with work or outside of work, it's this opportunity for a deeper connection. And, and so often we're, we're playing this role rather than, than living our, our authentic selves. And that a lot of times leads to these, these mental health challenges and not just speaking what's going on. And music seems to be one of those things that gives us the permission to do that, whether it's through singing um, or whether it's just through being there with, with community, with something that's resonating with us at the same time. You know, no, I, I think, yeah, go ahead, Drew. I'm sorry. I, I, mean, see, I, I think like music is one of the few things that can, it can magnify a mood. It can change a mood. It can take you back to a different place. Like there's so many things that music can do. It's like, it's the soundtrack to our lives. I mean, that's the thing that people will say all the time, but you know, if you just a minor chord versus a major chord, the way it can just change your mood, the way, the way that, you know, an orchestral piece can elevate something worth versus like me growing up, like when I was in a bad mood, I would put on Guns N' Roses and I would just like ride my mountain bike, like, and just like, I was so angry. And it's just, I just needed this music that kind of, yes, it kind of gave me permission to be frustrated and angry and get it out. But then today I was listening to like some old school R&B, some like smooth, like Teddy Pendergrass. And I was like, oh yeah, this is, I needed this today to just kind of mellow out a little bit. And I feel like music Music is one of those few things that can lift you out of a mood. It can magnify something. It can really just transport you. And it it doesn't have to be the lyrics. It doesn't even have to be the production. Just the chord structure, just the the way that it is built has has that power. And I feel like that's why we see so many many songs that that have become so meaningful to us uh, because they, they make us feel. They make us feel a certain way. And I feel like once we're able to kind of tap into music almost as a, a tool to kind of help our lives and, and bring joy and benefit to our lives, I think that's just one more one more thing that we can use. I mean, I do it all the time. Like, I got to chill out. 
let me put on some some music to kind of bring my stress down or I need to put on something that's going to get me in a better mood. And and I think like for us, like my, my group was big in like the late 90s, you know, which is having like this resurgence. And for a lot of people, like t- people that were teenage girls, mostly at the time, you know, that was like this fun, joyous joyous moment in their lives. And so like they listen to like 98 degrees or backstreet or NSYNC or one of these groups. And all of a sudden they're like, it takes them back to junior high school when life was a little bit more simple. And you know, that joy, those, those endorphins that that music can bring, um, it, it really is unmatched. I feel like by any other art form. It really is. And, um, um, just as a point of a uh, conversation, my daughter often talked about wanting to get her master's in music therapy because she has seen it. She's an artist. Um, and played clarinet all through high school and college and now is uh, runs an orchestra but she's also uh, taught herself the guitar and she's uh, done her own little um, six record album and and she said dad music changes lives music does this so I I, I get it and um, I I just think it's a wonderful platform for all of us we just need to be open to receiving it and um, I think my daughter came to it as as her grandmother my mom was was really very depressed as she was navigating some health challenges. And um, Jasmine, when we would go see her, she'd always bring music and it would lift my mom's spirit. So I get it very much so. And the last song my mom heard as she was passing, as she was passing was Before I Let Go from uh, Frankie Beverly. She heard. And so if you go to the lyrics for that song, I I want you to know how much I love you and that kind. So it it was eerie because that was chosen for us, not by us, for her to hear as. So, you know, I appreciate you guys. And now what I want to do is I want to kind of demystify mental health for us as as men. Uh, We know that this is Movember, Men's Health Awareness Month. And let's talk about men's mental health, because sometimes we don't want to show vulnerability. And, you know, we uh, we we got these wide shoulders and, you know, we take care of everybody else. We know that more than six million uh, men live with depression each year and men are almost four times as likely to die from suicide as women. And one in five men will develop alcohol dependency uh, during their lives. Yet it can be particularly difficult for us to open up and ask for help. Why do you all think we won't ask for help? And how can we all work to get us to be more open to saying, hey, I'm, I, I, I need you um, or I need to talk to you? Um, so why do you think we won't? And how do we change that? Yeah, I, mean, I think just in general, I, I think you hit it nail, the nail on the head. We don't want to we don't want to admit some kind of flaw or some sort. I mean, flaw. I say that with with air quotes because it's not. It's not a flaw. It's not that we're fractured or broken. It is just something that some of us deal with. Um, and I, I, I really do feel like that it is this admission that you're not perfect, that you're not, you know, able to carry the weight of the world. When I think it's exactly the opposite. I feel like when you are able to admit that mm-hmm. you need help, that you are struggling with something, that actually ultimately will give you more strength to carry more on your shoulders. So I feel like when you keep it pushed aside and you're like, no, I got this, I can handle this. I got to, I got to, I got to carry my family. I got to carry the financial burden. I got to carry all these things. And so I'm just like going to keep keeping this stuff on top of me. And if I say that I'm struggling and then I don't have, I don't have all the answers. I need help. If I say those things, then I'm going to let everybody around me down and I'm going to show that I can't handle everything. And that, that to me, there's this, there's this, um, it's not a stigma, but it's almost like this idea that we have to be made out of stone and, and be able to hold everything, which I think is, is foolish to a large degree because that's impossible. None of us can carry everything. We all need help. We all need people in our community, whether it's our family, whether it's our best friend, whether it's our parents that are able to, to help carry some of that, some of that load. And, a lot of my people around me are always like, Drew, you got to ask for help. You got to let us know when there's something we can do. Let us take something off you. Let us let us be there for you. Um, and I think that that community is very important because they, number one, will give you the permission to say, I need help. They also mm-hmm. will be there to give the help once you are able to ask for it. Um, so, again, I feel like it comes down to trust and finding the people again around you that, that will support you. But yeah, I do feel, I mean, we got, you got the Rockies and you got the Rambos and you got all these, these macho guys. It's like, Oh man, Rambo never asked for help. 
you know, he just he just opened up a bullet and put it in the wound and lit it on fire and he healed up his wound. And then he, he defeated a whole army with the bow and arrow and a, and a matchstick, you know, MacGyver. MacGyver needs duct tape and a magnifying glass and he can stop a nuclear war. I mean, oh, how come I can't deal with this stuff in my life? And, you know, so it, it really is kind of, um, you know, magnified in, in certain ways. But it really is something that we have to get over because we will never be our, our strongest, fullest self if we aren't able to ask for help and admit when we need it. Ask for help and admit it. Um, thank you. And you're so right about MacGyver. Yeah. And all, all of the other um, films that have shown us as just being so hard that nothing affects us. Um, and uh, what you talked about with First Blood and, and, and that film. Um, yeah, got it. Yeah. It's John so. Wayne's fault. It's a, it all goes back to John Wayne. It's John Wayne's fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He looks simple from the outside, but I mean, I think that's it. It's the it, what I was going to say from my own experience. It's it's a lack of role models, and and I think mm. it, for me in my own life, my father was an amazingly wonderful person, but was not emotionally open or emotionally sensitive, and couldn't relate in that way. And I didn't have the role model as even though I identified as more vulnerable than a lot of my friends. I didn't truly know how to express it or how to go about it. Uh, and I had this internal idea of, uh, of masculinity being the strong, silent type, the John, the John Wayne type, because my dad was more along those lines. And I think the more we can be role models for each other, whether you're younger or older, whoever you are, we can open up that normalization of just, you know, when you were saying like, um, the idea of like being stone cold, like it's almost more courageous and stronger to open up. That's so hard when you realize like, actually I'm fighting the opening up. That's what's actually challenging and would probably be more courageous because it's terrifying to do that. And um, I recently watched an amazing documentary. I don't know if either of you seen, it's called the work uh, where mm -hmm. a men's group from uh, I think it was San Francisco goes into Folsom prison and they do men's work like little men's group circles with the Folsom prison inmates and the inmates have been doing it every year. And it was amazing to watch these people who had life sentences be so courageous and openly vulnerable that they were teaching the people on the quote unquote outside how to be vulnerable men. And, you know, I was watching with someone and he just said, wow, that is, that's what a real man looks like who can break down and cry a prison inmate breaking down and crying because he feels sad and he feels torn apart and he can express that. And sometimes you just need to do that. And sometimes that's the courageous thing to do. And I think the more we can be role models for each other and normalizing open emotional behavior, the more it's going to allow people to reach out for support when they need it and just be there for each other in better ways. Yeah. You know, I feel like when we're young, we, we're, we're, it's ingrained in us, you know, you don't, you don't, wine you just you just get up if you fall down you just get up and you just press on and and you don't you don't you know you don't show this weakness and I, to me the the idea that trying to be your best self and trying to figure out the best way to become that person is a sign of weakness it to me is is uh, like like Chris was saying it's, it's it's the exact opposite to saying i'm i'm on this journey to try and find out how i can be better that is the most courageous act you can ever have. I mean, to be like, look, I can't do this alone. I need help. I'm trying to figure out how I can be better for myself, for my family, for my kids. That's, that is, to me, that's the sign of a, a, what a true man is, not whether you can hold in and hold it together longer. I mean, I believe the greatest generation and Tom Brokaw and all that stuff that I, I believe that. I mean, they put up with, they overcame a lot of different things, but there is also you know, when those men were coming back from World War II and they didn't have necessarily the, the coping skills to deal with what they had just gone through. And there wasn't the the knowledge about uh, PTSD or mental health or or the struggles that was going to happen. They just all kind of held it in. And then it came out in different ways. Um, th that part isn't really talked about. Uh, it's more commonly talked about now with people coming back from stressful situations or, or combat zones. But, you know, if we would have had that knowledge and would have been able to talk through things at that time in the forties or even, you know, coming back from Vietnam and, and I'm using those because those are, those are some of the most historical 
traumatic situations that have fo- affected mostly men um, coming back from the combat zones. Um, you know, I feel like we would have been we'd be in a lot better place now to be open to receiving that help. Um, but historically, we haven't got it. We just suck it up. We press on. We don't whine about it. It's we're not crybabies. We just, you know, be a man like all these all these things that you're you're taught when you're when you're younger that you have to eventually overcome in order to become the best version of yourself. And I feel like it's, yeah, we've been, we've been kind of programmed. Uh, We've been programmed. We've been conditioned and um, coming from, coming from a family of paratroopers, you know, these are, these are, you know, men, my father and my brother that that jumped out of planes in combat and this kind of thing. And and it's like, you want to talk about what? Um, So yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's to your point, you know, um, you know, shake it off. Um, We can do it. So this is the month where we can um, really help each other. And um, the bigger part of it is Drew, you mentioned something and Chris, you did as well, but Drew, you said that, you know, where where your family says, Hey, you got to let us know you need help or whatever, or you, 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 you got to listen. I think that's another hard thing for us is that even when people want to help us is us being receptive to the help. Uh, yep. That's the hardest thing because you now someone has opened up and said, I'm here for you. And you don't want to seem like uh, you are a um, a crutch or something like that to actually, you know, we hear them, but we're like, OK, uh, well, I'm, I, I don't want to seem this way. And 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 society has, has created that. So it goes back to that vulnerability. It goes back to trust. Um, and it also goes back to actually role models. We don't have the role models, so we have to create them. So we have to be them. So uh, this is wonderful. And as we close this out, I want to just say again, thank you. But uh, before we get to the close, you've said so many things about uh, not being emotionally open um, um, and not vulnerable in terms of, you know, the the the, uh, the generation before us and, um, and and how music magnifies a mood and, uh, you know, and, and what it can do for us. So I just want to say thank you. And there's so much more I could I could say, but I've been listening. I'm, I, I believe in Kaizen, you know, uh, the Japanese word for continuous improvement. And I, I think I, of myself as a lifelong student and you guys have really taught me some things here. So as we wrap up, I just want to close with this little summary and ask you uh, something that we'd like for you to share with uh, with our listeners. Uh, the world can be a difficult place and sometimes it can be hard to hold on to hope. That's why each week we dedicate the last couple of minutes of our podcast to a special section called Hold On to Hope. To both of you all, can you tell us what has helped you uh, has helped you hold on to hope? What would you like to share with the audience? Um, I, I'll say for me, um, the show that we were talking about earlier, um, Labelist, it, it really has given me a different perspective uh and it does it gives me so much hope for a better future because the people that are inheriting this world are in a much better place to usher it into a into a more compassionate into a more compassionate place and so i I feel um that this next generation this openness that they have to learn to be in touch with who they are even musical artists coming out and talking about their struggles openly with mental health I feel like all those things are just every time we knock down one stereotype, one wall, we're we're giving ourselves hope for uh, a better tomorrow. And so that that is um, this next generation really encourages me uh, in in that, you know, when I'm, you know, no longer here, that the world will be in a better place than it was when I was. Thank you, Drew. Holding on to hope. Chris, what would you like to share with the audience about holding on to hope? I, I that aspect of listening that you were talking to, I've been trying to just really tune in and listen to people that want to help. And I've realized how many people there are out there who want to help from my nearest and dearest friends to people we meet at shows to artists that reach out to us. And sometimes I, I get so caught up in I'm I'm at A and I want to get to B and anything that doesn't get me from A to B uh, is is not worth listening to or I don't have time for. And I think when I just tune in a moment to how much beauty is out there in the world and how many people actually want to help and be supportive uh, and and are doing amazing work, it gives me a lot of hope. And getting outside of 
what I want and what I need uh, or a vision for our organization and what we're trying to accomplish. And then just taking the moment to acknowledge all the amazing work that goes on every day um, from young folks and, and folks of all generations. It's, it's truly incredible. And it's, I think it's, it's easy to just look at news headlines and get bogged down in the, the worst news that's projected in the world. But if you just tune in day and day, you can see the love in the world around you. Um, and, and I've just, I, I've been trying to just tune in to listening a bit more to, to all the all the love and the helping hands that are out there every day, which is incredible. There is love and there is hope out there. And we just have to focus on that and not fear. Um, and, and if we can do that and, and helping each other. And Movember is a critical opportunity for us to do it. So I just want to say to you guys before we wrap um, that, you know, you, you're lending your voice and you're, you're incredibly accomplished. So you don't have to do this. You're choosing to do it. And I just want to say thank you for that. And um, I just want to say this has been Hope Starts With Us, a podcast by NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. If you are looking for mental health resources, you are not alone. To connect with the NAMI helpline and find local resources, visit nami.org forward slash help. Text helpline to 62640 or dial 800-950-NAMI. Or if you are experiencing an immediate suicide, substance use, or mental health crisis, please call or text 988 to speak with a trained support specialist or visit 988lifeline.org. Thank you for listening and be well.